Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's going on, everybody? It's Matt, a.k.a. The Lumberjack Landlord, and we have, at least in my eyes, if not in yours, and if yours aren't, then they're broken, we have a celebrity in my eyes on the channel, Uneducated Economist. I'm super pumped to have you here, my man. It's been way too long, but pumped to have you. Been watching your fire on your live streams, which have been just tremendous. Welcome to the show. Simon, thank thanks you, so much for coming. I appreciate being here. Oh, dude, it's so awesome. I love doing these sessions with you. So I was, I'm going to be completely unfair in this session. I already told him the only thing I said to him was, I know I'm going to ask some really unfair questions and you might not have the answer. But for our channel, what we really look for is we really try to encourage people to have financial independence and financial freedom to then be able to own their own home, not be subject to crazy story from a landlord having to rent from a landlord, we really want to see people grow through that process where they can go become, you know, be renters, then become homeowners and really start to work their way through the life cycle. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was, I mean, you've been right, honestly, on so much stuff. It's kind of crazy. I'm just like, man, this is, I, I mean, you make me look so smart. It's, and that's hard to do on a lot of days. So, 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 so yeah, so I really appreciate it. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to, to, to broach with you first is, you know, the supply chain thing, you know, really when we were talking about a lot of, you know, working with a lot of other landlords, you know, they are, they were very hell bent on, we got to do this project now. We got to do this project now. We got to do this project now. And one of the things that I picked up from your channel was really talking about the supply chain and not it being only inflation, that it was really more, probably more supply chain that was inflation, but still nonetheless, I wanted you to kind of talk to people, talk them through that, because I think for those, I've actually got set aside a massive list of projects that we're going to do, because I believe we're going to be in recession next year, end of this year, early next year, I believe that we're going to be in a, a real recession. And I want to make sure that I can keep laborers working. I want to make sure that I have enough work for them. And so we put off a lot of stuff instead of fighting for guys this year, we just put off a lot of stuff that we just said, we can do that work next year. Why don't you kind of have you, have you talk people through kind of where we've been with supply chain based on all your experience, even, you know, specifically on the lumber side and then kind of where that hat, where you believe we're going to end up kind of end of this year, beginning of next. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, you know, there was a severe supply chain breakdown taking place. And, you know, if you had watched my channel, like I'm sure you were back through 2019, I was reporting on a lot of mill curtailments, inventory depletions, inventory, like just, you know, shutdowns altogether, or not necessarily shutdowns, but depletions that had been taking place through the mill shutdowns that had been happening up in, in British Columbia. And I had reported on this inventory depletion. And then when the you know, pandemic kicked in, there was even more mill curtailments, even more mill shutdowns, even more inventory depletions. 
So when lumber ran up to 1700 per thousand and everybody wanted to point at lumber saying, hey, look, the Federal Reserve and the money printer is causing inflation in the lumber industry. I was saying, no, this is a complete severe supply chain breakdown that is happening here. It had more to do with inventory levels than it really had to do with the with the Federal Reserve. And I feel that this is probably going to be something that we are going to experience throughout the rest of the economy, at least it's throughout some point. So that was one of the things that I had been watching. And it turned out that as the time went on here, we're starting to see that it was more of a supply chain breakdown than it was this overwhelming consumer demand that a lot of people wanted to call. And that's really where I, I think that now is probably going to be the benefit to those who had understand that the supply chain was breaking down. And like you're saying, saving those projects for when the time when the supply chain comes back together again and the flow of materials is starting to happen, you're going to find that prices are not going to be nearly as high as they once were. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've experienced, you know, just in looking at because we would still have to do repairs here and there. And so we'd still have to buy some two by fours every once and again. And so you know, I think they kind of peaked out a little over 10 bucks for a two by four by eight. Um, and then we saw, I think right now we're in the. I think it's, I think we're in the high fours, if I'm not mistaken, low fives in some places. So high fours, low fives. But I remember, you know, pre-pandemic, it was, uh, it was like 240, 240, 242, 248, right around there per, per two by four by eight, which is typically what's used to build a, a wall. Um, and so one of the interesting things is, is that when we went up to that, you know, 10 bucks, 11 bucks per two by four by eight. It was that $1,700 per 1,000 uh, board feet. That was one of the numbers that was, that was the number that was really predominant. And what was then kind of causing that, you know, based on that price is where your, you know, two by four price largely comes from. Right. And so now watching it at 600 or a little over 600, you know, it's fallen almost two thirds. But interestingly enough is that the price is really only about half. So do right. you see that supply basically working through the system to then getting to the less expensive, you know, what, what lumber, what the lumber future is more uh, dictating or, or determining now? Do you see that kind of just is a matter of supply working through the, the supply chain? Um, it is. Uh, we have to take in consideration that there was a lot of changes happening to the lumber industry as far as the manufacturers of lumber, like the mills. Yep. You know, the United States imports a lot of lumber, like a lot of people don't quite realize that we have 20% of the supply of lumber comes from Canada. Okay. And of that supply, a huge chunk of it comes from the British Columbia area. Well, those guys got decimated and those mills aren't coming back online. They're having to reestablish down in the southern part of the United States, which they are doing now. You have companies like Interfer and Canfor and West Fraser. They're all setting up down in the southern part, but to bring those mills up online and then have that full production start to fill in the system, that's going to take quite a while. It's going to take years for that to happen. So it's going to be a very interesting, you know, situation comparing the futures price to the retail price. Because right. there was a time when like 600 per thousand would have lumber around $4 per piece, yep. which is what you're experiencing. Yep. I'm through my yardums, I'm selling them at $7 a piece. Okay. So, right. So there's, there's a lot of like variations that happening there. And a lot of that has to do with the transportation, you know, how uh -huh. close to the distribution hubs are you? Right. You know, got it. Got it. Yeah. Cause I was so, going to say, cause it's not, you know, before anybody starts going nuts and talking about, Oh, it's the company's getting greedy relax 
There's a lot of other costs in there, like, I don't know, $6.50 diesel. Right. You know? Yep. There's there's the input cost of logs. There's the transportation cost. There's a lot of stuff, labor costs. There's a lot of things that are going into it. And those things are variable. Like, you know, you can have diesel prices come down. You can have labor prices come down. You can have like a lot of mills are, like I said, moving down to the southern part where the logs are a lot cheaper. So there's a lot of variables that are going to go into lumber that will change the price of it. You know, I love when people said, yeah, it's just these greedy mills taking advantage of the situation. <laughs> you know, all throughout 2019, mill curtailments and shutdowns and, you know, like these mills weren't doing really well. No. And I don't see a whole lot of people going, oh man, those poor mills back in the day, right. they didn't care. No, nope. they do care when they're, you know, all of a sudden making money for a few months, you know, exactly. then they call them bastards, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that was kind of my point too, is it was kind of like for us as landlords, we had flat rents for like five years because that's what the economy dictated. And then when the economy dictates, which largely I believe the Fed and the government broke housing. Largely, I believe that. And I feel worse for the for the renters. And so we had existing renters that we usually do a rent raise every two years. We don't do it every year. We usually do it every two years. Um, because quite frankly, if you're a good tenant, you've been with us for two years, we need to make sure that we're covering our updated costs. But we're fine. We, if we see that you're a great tenant, we want to keep you. We're more than happy to work with you on the number. And that's, that's kind of the way that we approach it because it's a, we believe it's a human business, not just a spreadsheet business. So I have to make my bank happy, who's my partner in all of my deals, but I also want to have my tenant happy. So it really is that kind of symbiotic relationship where we all kind of depend on each other. But that being said, what I found, and what the reason I wanted to talk to, to you about this portion of it was when a lot of those funds hit the market from the federal government, a lot of people don't know what the packages were like that the states were getting. And those packages actually allowed for them to pay up to 200% of the then current rents. So oh. we would have a unit that in the normal market would rent out for $1,400. But the market rent for that particular type of unit might be $1,200, but ours was nicer, cleaner, whatever, blah, 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 better area, whatever, fill in the blanks. So then they would take that $1,200 and say, we can pay up to double that. So we can pay $2,400. Well, with all of that money being rained down from the federal government into all the different states and then the states being in charge of dispersing it, some states did a much better job than others dispersing that money. I actually come from a state that did a phenomenal job dispersing that money in New Hampshire, but even there were winners and losers in different counties. But the thing that I wanted to ask you was, my belief is based on the fact that that's an artificial number. The real number was 12. The nicer unit might be 14 or 15, but a program being willing to pay 2,500 or 2,400, that creates a false sense of security that that's now the new market rent, right? right? And so I believe that's how it broke housing because all of a sudden I had 80 applications for every unit I put out instead of 25. I had 80. Wow. 80. It was, and, and we don't charge an application fee. I remember being really poor and coming up with the application fee to apply for the apartment sometimes was even hard. And the last thing that I could do was apply to 10 units 
at 50 bucks a piece and spend 500 bucks on applications. So mm -hmm. we actually, we foot the bill for it. We pay a broker, we pay a, an agent to basically show the units, um, but we pay them out of our pocket and we don't charge any application fee. That way anybody can truly apply because we don't want them having any cost. If they get told no, we want them having no cost whatsoever. So to that end though, I'm interested in your feedback on, on my belief that if a market is really 1200, we're charging 14 because of the better quality of product. And then all of a sudden the government's coming in and they're paying 24 or 25, unless that money's there in perpetuity, which it, I don't believe it will be, doesn't that create a false sense of really what the actual market is? Well, it certainly seems to be. And now, like, you know, I never really thought about it before, but now it makes a lot of sense on why those hedge funds were driving, diving into rentals as much as they were, yeah. considering that they were getting an over-exaggerated rent for those properties. Sure. Right? Yeah. And top of it. So when reality comes into play and the capabilities of the people won't be able to go to the 2400 what it normally should be. Correct. What are you going to find is that, you know, is that you're going to probably find where rentals are not going to be nearly as high as they were or continue to go up. I mean, at least in my opinion, if you don't have that false sense of security, like you're saying, coming from the government and their, and their stimulus. But yeah, I think so, that's, I think that's it. Keep going. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, at least that's kind of what I'm seeing from it. And then on top of that, if you add in the fear of recessions and stuff like that going on top of it, well, that gets people to behave in a way that actually causes recession. Right. And maybe they won't be looking for the $1,400 place, but maybe looking for, you know, the one oh, bedroom. 11, yeah. Yeah, 11 yeah. or something like that. Um, so, yeah, the obscurity within the market by doing that is like a distortion that people don't quite, you know, think is just going to be temporary they find that it's going to be permanent especially if they believe it's going to be permanent but it's not it's it's you know once the once the stimulus runs out and then the reality starts to set in yes. then we have to start finding that equilibrium where is it really that we need to be yeah the the other challenge that i see is i don't know what's going to happen to those people because i'm still getting like i said i mean when we post a unit it's 80 or 100 applications in a weekend we post on a thursday night by sunday i've got 100 applications and only 85 percent of them interestingly enough 85 percent of them don't meet our 680 credit requirement 85 percent don't meet 680 85 percent. so really you only have 15 percent of those people who could actually be there correct so all those applications it's noise for me. It's, it's money. Noise. Right. It's, it's noise. It's there, you know, all due respect to the people that have a lower than 680 credit score. When we post in the ad that you need to be at a 680 and you still apply anyway, that's time that my agent's still spending on that. And that's fine. Like I'm a big boy, way it goes. The, the challenge that I have is that what's happening. And I think that those people continue to cycle through. And some of them, I know that, um, there's been sadly a couple of pretty large portfolios in my area of properties, like smaller multifamily, like two, three, four unit that have sold to investors that are not the kind of investor that I've pride myself in being. And they have basically given notice to housing and to programs saying we're shutting off We're we're all, we're not doing any more program stuff. So the question is how, as a country, I mean, 
like I said, this is one of those ones where I'm just, I'm truly searching for answers. How as a country do we bridge that gap? How as a country, you know, I, is there really that much of a shortage of housing? Do we need to, do people, I, I just, I'm at a loss because, you know, I'm working with these housing authorities trying to help them. And it was kind of like, I just caught somebody in a moment of weakness where they said, oh, thanks, one unit. And I was like, sorry? <laughs> She's like, I just lost 50. I was wow. like, 50? She's like, yeah, somebody just bought a portfolio and they're basically telling us they're giving everybody 60 days notice that all gone. And what do they plan on doing with it after that? They can renovate all of those units and they can and get rent. market rent. And, and, yeah. and housing is in that market, you know? The housing authorities aren't usually at market. The places that you'll find housing authorities that are usually at market rents are in uh, tier two neighborhoods. Dude, you're good. All good. Sorry, I'm just trying to block my phone here from cooking on the damn window. There we go. Totally good, my man. So I think the challenge is with a lot of those housing authority numbers because they'll carry, they'll cover like a county. And so there's usually in most counties, there's one or two pretty expensive areas. Then there's like a couple of tier B areas. And then there's usually a couple of tier C areas and maybe one tier D. And so in tier D, the numbers work. In tier C, the numbers work. But in A and B, those numbers don't work. So I guess I'm interested. And again, it's really more just kind of like a discussion because we've actually started working with folks now six months before their leases are over. We started working with them now saying, hey, these are what all the numbers are. This is what everything looks like. We want to help you in a transition because frankly, I can't afford to rent for what you can afford to pay. And I got to make the bank happy and I got to make, you know, I, I have, and it's like, we're not rolling in it. We just have to make our margins because otherwise the bank says, no, you need, we're not going to do, right? do any more loans with you. You have to make this much margin just to cover expenses plus margin in case something goes sideways. So I'm interested. And again, like I said, completely unfair question. If you solve this problem, you're, you're probably should be, uh, you know, running for Congress in your area um, because heaven knows you've a, a done a good job of it. So I'm confused. I just don't know. I think that that broke the system with these crazy high rents. And I think that having 85% of the people that apply not even qualify like, where are they going? What will they, what will they be able to get to? Because they're not going to be able to largely stay where they are unless they're, you know, is that force of migration into other areas? And that's, like I said, I'm at kind of a loss on it. What are yeah. your thoughts? Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's really going to be an answer. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that really can be solved. And um, I think a lot of it, you know, I keep referring back to, you know, one of the, my favorite um, essays that ever, has ever been written on economics is the Cantillon essay on economic theory. And even though this essay was written back in the 1700s, a lot of the principles that are in that essay still apply today. And one of the things that he mentions inside of that essay is, you know, that you're coming to closer to the end of the cycle of money pouring into the system when rents become uncontrollably high. Hmm. Right? And so that might be one of the situations that we're in right now is yeah. the idea of the Cantillon effect where new money pours into the system and driving the prices up ever increasingly forces the people at the very bottom of the, of the line 
to have to leave that area in order yeah. to find their standard of living. Well, if it's happening everywhere, I mean, are you going to leave the United States altogether or right. are you stuck here? So what ends up happening is you have a uncontrollable homeless population that starts to starts to swell. I mean, I'm noticing it here. Like a lot of people want to, you know, blame it on politics, which a lot of it does have to do with politics, but hardly anybody's taken into the idea that it's a gentrification issue where the new money that's pouring in is basically giving the those who have the ability to rent, but those who not don't have, you know, or don't have the ability is growing much higher than the available rentals out there. So mm. really it's more of this new money that's poured into the system that's supposedly meant to help the people, which is actually doing more damage than good as it drives the rents up even higher. Right, yeah, I agree with that. And I think that that's, you know, we we pride ourselves on being able to be that, you know, kids apartment during college, kids first apartment out of college, you know, the, the young professionals first place after they've kind of left their roommates. Um, and really kind of the last stop kind of like through the, through the cycle of being that last stop before they buy their home. And that's one of the things where I'm starting to see the, um, the roommate situation hold longer. So people at 24, 25, 26, 27, still living with three or four roommates in a three bedroom or four bedroom home. And I think that, I think they're smarter than most, right? They're going to be in the best position because they kept their costs as low as they possibly can. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that that's what I've also seen more of the multi-generational applying for our larger units, you know, so four bedrooms, it's mom, it's, uh, brother and sister, but in their thirties, one of them has a girlfriend, maybe a couple of kids. And so it's these like seven, six, seven person families. I'm seeing a lot more of that than I ever have as well. Um, and it's almost done out of a necessity, right. You mm -hmm. know, to, to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I guess the only answer to a lack of housing is to build more houses. Right. So how do you get more houses built? Well, builders have to be profitable. Correct. And so you know, in order to build a profitable home, you have to have the input costs come down. That's right. So that's really going to, because you think about it, if you're a builder, you know, if you're a builder going to build a $500,000 home yep. and you're projected on, you know, selling this home for 500,000, but then the housing market falls to 450,000. Well, that's like a, that's like your profit there. That's like, you know, yep. that's what you were going for was that $50,000 that you just lost on it. That's if right. you're a builder who's nervous about housing market going down, how much more inventory are you going to add to the market? Probably not a lot. So the idea of like house prices dropping will actually deprive the inventory level. Right. Now, what, what that's where like my major, like that's where like, I feel that people don't quite understand how the housing market would fall. Like the only way to really get the housing prices to come down is to add more inventory to the level. Yes, to it. supply and demand, right? It's supply and demand. And right. so right now we're sitting on incredibly tight inventory, although there's more houses coming onto the market, mm -hmm. there's not nearly enough. And Jason Hartman did a great presentation at the Rebel Capitalist Live event talking about this exact thing. And after the presentation, I realized you could double the amount of inventory and still be incredibly low. Right. So, yes. Right. So like it would have to be some sort mm -hmm. of housing booming or construction boom taking place 
in order for there to be enough inventory to really drive down those prices. I don't really see that there is going to be a way that you can fix this, right? Time will take care of it as an older population. I mean, we, we, you know, we do have an, a demographics issue where the older population will eventually you know, die off and that, that will provide some, some homes, but that's not, a, that's not necessarily gonna help people out today. It'll take a while. <laughs> it's gonna be a while, right? So I mean, as time goes on, it might get a little easier for those. But again, as far as like, you know, people who are looking to find a place to live right now and for the next few years or five years or 10 years, it, it doesn't look pretty for them. And I'm not sure what it is that can be done in order to fix that. You can lift the interest rates and, you know, again, like get people to, to maybe not be able to afford the payments on an expensive home, but that doesn't necessarily add to the inventory level. It just makes it more frustrating, yeah. right? And then when you have institutional buyers who are coming in or people who are looking to make money off of the rentals and they happen to have cash, well, on a low inventory, that does give a little bit more of a situation for those with cash to take from that inventory, right. and not really allowing it to, to lift up again. So I don't know if there is an answer to, to this. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's probably going to be this way for some time. Yeah. So one of the things that, so one of the things that I've thought of is I started studying some other cities around the country and kind of, you know, the, if you look at the median home price, that's the one that I really track the most because that's where you look at it and say, most first time home buyers are going to be median home price minus, right? They're going to be buying in the bottom half. So what I think is interesting is um, the city of Houston um, has actually, I don't know how long it's been, but they actually did away with a lot of building codes, not building codes, but zoning codes, zoning rules. So one of the really interesting things where I'm from in New Hampshire is that most of the towns have one acre covenants. So if you have an 11 acre piece of land and you're putting a road in there, which by the way, roads are now running about a thousand dollars a foot to put a road in because a thousand a foot my man so i did i literally looked at a piece of land and i tried to get and i got all the engineering plans and all the nine and then i got a quote from the from three different road companies and the cheapest one was a thousand bucks a foot it was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a 750 foot road and if you figure right. a typical house lot might be a hundred feet of frontage that was literally 14 houses not including cost of the land, just the road was going to run me $750,000 Divide it, It's literally going to cost me 50,000 bucks a house for their part of the road. Forget about the land. That's how crazy this is. That's how crazy it is. And that's the reason why you're not going to see the inventory levels rising exactly. dramatically by builders. Exactly. You know? So I mean, one of one of the things that I think is is helpful is I always believe that every system, every end mean needs a farm system. So like baseball, A ball, double A ball, triple A ball, major leagues really has a system. And so I believe that there needs to be that option to go from multifamily of an apartment into a smaller home. I think that that makes sense. The problem is, is that I've talked to a ton of builders and they're saying, I can't build a smaller home. And I was like, why? 
They said, because I have an acre that I have to work with. I can put one home on that acre. It has to be a big, large house because otherwise I'm not going to get the sales price because it's all percentage of profitability for margin. You know, if it's a $700,000 house, they make 70,000 bucks. If it's a $500,000 house, they make 50,000 bucks as an example. And so as we're working through the math and looking at the numbers, it makes sense why everything that they build is not a new affordable home. It makes sense why everything that they're building is 2,500 square feet, 2,800 square feet and starts at $750,000. So I think the only way that I would want the government to get involved or for states to get smarter about things is I think if they look at zoning and say, instead of an acre, because if you look in most downtown areas of most New England cities, they would call a lot 0.07 acres or 0.1. So you can do 10th of an acre, like little swatches of land. And then they would put on those 10ths of an acre, they'd put duplexes. So even if it's not a duplex, but even if it's an acre and they say, hey, we'll allow for on point one, we'll allow you to basically do what I call a, a housing burst, which is you have your road, which costs you 750,000 bucks, but then you have another road that goes in and then you have, you know, six small one bedroom or two bedroom homes on those where you still have a yard, you still have a lawn. It's nicely done. It's nicely manicured. But if you could get that level of density, you now have a two bedroom home that would probably sell for in the two hundreds. Yeah. But I think that that's, a, but that's going to be a zoning issue because I can tell you, everyone thinks that this is a brilliant idea. All the people that want affordable housing, it's a brilliant idea. And everyone says not in my backyard. Right. And that's where they don't, yeah, they don't want it there. They want be, well, and the reason is, is that if you own a home, you don't want the home value to drop, right? You sure. want the other homes to be around you to be million dollar homes as well, or even more, sure. because then that drives up the price of your home or the value of your home. Um, so yeah, I mean, everybody has this great idea. We should stack everybody up in these tiny little homes out there, way out there. Way out there. And and so yeah, that could be it. But it really, I think it just comes down to the free market of it. I mean. You know, you can get government involved to say, get out of being involved, meaning don't tax me as much, don't charge as much for permitting, don't, you know, do all the stuff that, you know, encroaches in on the profits of the builders. And then the builders could, you know, make the homes more affordable if they could build cheaper homes. But again, like you said, right now in the situation that we're in, that's just not there. It's not the environment for them. And so, like I think about, you know, the 1200 square foot ranch style home that you yes. used to see back in the seventies, eighties, yeah. where they were slamming them up in six weeks, you know, the capability is there, Yeah. but if it's not profitable, it's never going to happen. You yeah. Know? So have you, have you ventured at all or looked at all at some of like the 3d printing houses? Have you looked at any, at any of that stuff yet? I have. Um, and although it's a very unique and uh, it's a very unique and interesting concept to, you know, have this little machine that basically spits a little layer of concrete over top of each other again and again and again until it builds the walls up. But after that, how, like, how much more needs to go into these buildings and yeah. how efficient really is that? And can you do that in the middle of winter here in the Pacific Northwest as it's dumping, you know, 
six inches of rain every, you know, four yeah. days. And, you, you know, it's just not, it's just not a feasible way. So there is some areas in which that I feel that, that 3d printing could be, you know, a bit of a benefit, um, you know, as far as like not having to deal with the lumber issues and stuff like that. But as far as being like the new way of building homes, I just don't see anything other than stick built framing being the most efficient way of going about it. Um, at least in our country, you know, in other places, they do concrete all over. They do concrete blocks, concrete walls. Everything's made of concrete. But then you have to think, you have to have a facility that provides that concrete. And yes. now what if you're like, you know, I mean, what if you're building a home across the river way up, way up there? I mean, you're not going to have like a ton of concrete constantly be delivered up there when you can have lumber thrown there, dropped off, and then you go and work on the house whenever you want. Sure. There's, there's, it's more of like the process in which that the supply of like concrete or lumber comes to that that particular project and as far as i can tell there's no more efficient way of doing it than with stick built framing at yeah. least for now yeah i think and there's so not a whole lot that you can do to increase the efficiency of building a stick i mean stick built framing really after the nail gun there's really not much more you can do i mean it's just like it's it's that's it that's as efficient as it's going to get but it doesn't mean that's the only way you can build i mean there is new concepts that are coming in like the cross laminated timber yep. and that's like not really something that a lot of people are talking about it's new it's still a little bit more expensive it's not exactly, you know, the perfect system, but it's growing and it's getting better. And if you're not familiar with cross laminated timber, it's when they build apartment complexes and high rises completely out of wood. And it's done with like a glue lamp style beam yeah. that has been pre-manufactured at another location and then brought to the site and put into place. So it's very environmentally friendly and like, even in the construction of the building itself, when they do these cross laminated timbers, it's not nearly as intrusive on the other like inhabitants around that particular construction site, because you don't have a bunch of people like cutting steel and porn and doing and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It's more like pieces being craned into place as they show up. Yep. So I feel that the cross laminated timber industry could have an impact later on in the, as time goes on. But as far as solving the problem today, it's not there yet, you know. Is is that kind of taking off of LVLs? Is it like a is is it an LVL or is it like a step above an LVL? It's a step above an LVL. Okay. Um, and so basically, the cross laminated timber is kind of how it says, you know, like a glue lamp beam. If you can imagine taking a bunch of two by sixes and then gluing them face to face to face until you have this big beam, you know, that's six inches by however wide you build it. Well, the cross laminated timber does a little something different. They do a six by six you know, long ways, and then they cut them and do six by sixes the other way. And then again, oh. again, again. And so this is the cross lamination that they're, that they're talking about. Got it. They figured out ways to do it so that it's bug proof, fireproof, you know, rot proof, all the stuff that people would consider being like bad for, you know, using wood for this type of construction. They've solved all those problems as far as like those issues go. It's the efficiency of having enough facilities that do those cross laminated timbers and to be able to provide that material to the job sites in an efficient manner. That's not there yet. That's the problem with it. Yeah, because LVLs changed our lives. Like we would, we were always fans of opening up living spaces and kitchens and having everything kind of be together. And the work that it would take 
to do that with regular lumber. You're talking about, you know, instead of sistering, you know, three LVLs together, you know, seven and a quarters or nine and a halfs or nine and a quarters, instead of sistering three of those together, you were talking about, all right, so I need a 16 foot uh, two by 12 by 16 or two by, you know, two by 16 by 16. And then I need three of those when you weren't using like the engineered beams, like the LVLs. So then you'd always have that massive dip coming in where you had to eliminate your wall with the LVLs and being able to sister those. It's just been, it's been a game changer because you can literally hide those up in the ceiling where nobody knows that it's there and you still have all the rigidity. And we love putting them in our old buildings because it completely takes out that cloud frame bounce that you have between the floors. What a great product. And so I'm really excited to use that product that you're talking about. Um, I guess kind of, if you'd be willing to kind of go over it, I know the kind of the last topic I wanted to cover with you was, I think over the last year, I've seen a trend on YouTube about crash video, crash video, crash video, crash is coming, crash is coming, crash is coming. And sadly, what I've seen on my channel is a lot of people coming to me saying, I wish I found your channel six months ago because I waited and I didn't buy because of all these crash videos. And so I know that you had a little bit of experience with having purchased a house at the end of last year, as much as you'd like to share that I'd love to have you share it with folks, because I think that you're a perfect example of putting the pieces together, recognizing that it's a matter of, it's a matter of essentially evaluating the numbers in the moment and then kind of letting the future take care of itself based on, we always preach 30 year fixed rate mortgages. Don't get any of the goofy stuff. 30 year fixed rate mortgages. If that's the payment, then that's what you likely can afford. Um, but if you could just kind of talk about your experience with that, because I know you bought last year and I know that we're in a much different world this year. If you can kind of compare and contrast, I'd love for you to just kind of take people through that story that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to kind of give everybody an idea prior to buying my house, I didn't want to. I was very nervous. I was very much on housing markets going to crash. I'm going to buy this house and lose everything I had because that's what happened to me back in 2007 and eight, right? I bought this house at the height of the market, ended up going right into the great financial crisis and everything from my life started turning upside down. And so like the purchase of that house back then, I felt took 10 years out of me and it was, it was a very difficult time. I was nervous about that exact same scenario happening to me again. That is not even close to what, what occurred, right? So I bought my house in, let's see, I signed the deal in, let's see, at the end of October, moved in in November. I got my house at three and a quarter percent interest on a fixed rate, right? Which is like, I think it was the last week they had them at that, you know, I, I, I just happened to nail it and I was forced into this. I wanted to rent. I mean, I was telling people I, I want to be 100% assets and no liabilities and taking on an expensive mortgage, especially in the area that I'm in, because all these houses just went through the roof. Yeah, I was nervous about that. I didn't want to go into it. And then on top of it, I had like a foreclosure in my past. So then they made me come up with even more down payment for it, which is making me even hard, like even more nervous about it, because now it's taken all my money away. So I did it, right? I ended up doing it because, you know, what else was I going to do? I had to leave the area or I had to buy a house. And so I, I didn't want to leave the area. 
So I bought this house and I put a lot of money down on it, like over 10%. It was about 10%. After that, interest rates started to go up. And so I was realizing then, I was like, man, had I not purchased it when I did, I don't know if I'd be able to make the payments on this house. Mm-hmm. Like, even if the prices, even if the price had stayed right where it was at, yeah, I don't know. Cause like I was, a, like I was able to use my YouTube revenue as part of my income and my income and my wife's income. I needed all that in order to get into this house. Yeah. And so it made me wonder, it was just like, man, I don't know if I would have been able to uh, uh, qualify for the loan with the payments that, you know, would have to be made once the interest rates started to rise, even if the house had stayed at the, the price that I had paid for it. Well, not only did the interest rates rise, but then the price of the home went up like another 20% after right. that. Right. So now I'm sitting in a position in which that the value of the home, at least what, you know, according to the estimates is like way higher than what I paid for it. And if we were to have a significant downturn, I would still not be underwater on this house. I mean, it would have to take like a huge, like better than 20, 25% downturn in the housing prices, which is most likely not going to happen. I mean, it could, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not going to deny that, you know, anything is possible, sure. but the, but the chances of that are, are pretty slim. So here I was absolutely confident in the idea that I did not want to buy this house and was forced into it, ended up being one of the better decisions financially that had ever been made. So, I mean, I have to look back on that and say, okay, well, I have to reconsider some, you know, what's going on with this housing market and is it as bad or is it going to crash like I once thought it was. Mm -hmm. And now that I am here in this house, I know I, that, you know, you change your perspective of things, right? So, you know, I was, I didn't have a house before and I didn't want one and now I have a house and now I'm glad I have it. So it was like a complete flip on the idea, you know, but, but, you know, that's, that is what occurred, but there's a lot of differences that were happening there. You know, you have to think like, what would cause the housing market to crash? Like, what would it be? Well, it would be like this overwhelming inventory that just hit the market because people are going into foreclosures. Right. Well, it's not the same situation as the great financial crisis. I mean, you know, they close. learned a lesson, a valuable lesson about creating mortgage-backed securities that are toxic. So the people who qualify for loans are the most qualified people yes. who get these loans, right? Yes. Yep. And then you think, you know, so that's that's like one thing. So the mortgage-backed securities aren't necessarily toxic. Mm-mm. But then there's also the idea that the Federal Reserve is going to dump these mortgage-backed securities, right? And so if you're I guess let's talk about mortgage-backed securities yeah, real quick. Please. Some people may not understand what a mortgage-backed security is. Absolutely. It, it real simply explained, if you took a box and you filled it up with a bunch of mortgages and those mortgages were paying the investor, you can sell the, that mortgage-backed security, that box off to an investor. Mm-hmm. So it's like, an, it's like a group of mortgages that have been put together. And those things were toxic, but people didn't realize it. They were labeled a safe asset back in the day because most people make their mortgage payments. And so they just labeled them that way. But then we realized that there was unqualified buyers going into them back in the great financial crisis. Today, those mortgage-backed securities are filled with qualified buyers. There's not like, it's not filled with those toxic zombie people, essentially, who once they lose their income, that's it, it's over. These are the higher qualified people. They could lose their jobs, but the chances of that mortgage-backed security going into failure is very low, considering that everybody else who has their mortgages most likely will pay them as well. So the mortgage-backed securities are not quite the toxic assets that they once were. 
But the Federal Reserve said that they were going to dump a bunch of these things. Okay, so let's say that they do dump a bunch of these mortgage-backed securities, and all of a sudden there's these flood of mortgages out there, which is kind of like having bonds. And there's if you have a like a lot of bonds for sale, supply and demand, and you don't have a lot of demand for them, well, then the price of those things fall and the interest rates begin to rise. So that's one of the concerns coming from a lot of people when they say that the Federal Reserve is going to dump these mortgage-backed securities out onto the market, creating a bunch of them for people to buy. And if there's more supply of mortgage-backed securities than there is demand for them, that's what's going to cause the price to drop and the interest rates to rise. However, during the whole pandemic and everything else, the Federal Reserve was buying these mortgage-backed securities, which drove the interest rates down and the value of them up. So when the interest rates are low, well, that's also the reason why everybody's loans or the loans that they could take out were low as well. Sure. So if the the Federal Reserve had these mortgage-backed securities that they had purchased, driving the, the, the yields down and the prices of them up, that gave people the ability to start refinancing their homes at a much cheaper rate because you know there was the demand for these mortgage-backed securities. When they do that refinancing, what they are doing is they are elim- eliminating the first loan and reestablishing a new one. Mm-hmm. That is a new loan that is going to create a new mortgage-backed security. Yes. So the first mortgage-backed security disappears, and the next one comes up for purchase. And that's what the Federal Reserve was doing, was they were basically rolling these mortgage-backed securities over and over and over again as people were refinancing their homes. Well, the moment that the interest rates began to rise, well, now we don't have as many mortgage-backed securities being you know, uh, essentially invented you know, or just developed because you don't have as many people refinancing their homes. So the original loan stays in place, that original mortgage-backed security doesn't disappear, and there's no new ones coming onto the market from that refinancing of loans. This gives the people who buy mortgage-backed securities like institutional investors, hedge funds, insurance companies, retirement funds, whatever, it gives them the ability to have a, well, it doesn't give them the ability. There is less, less availability from them that gives the Federal Reserve the ability to start dumping these mortgage-backed securities into that market because now they have a buyer since the refinancing hasn't taken place. I don't know if I explained all that right. No, perfectly. Basically, yeah, basically there's less mortgage-backed securities to purchase from the refinancing and the Federal Reserve can then dump out their mortgage-backed securities off their balance sheet and not cause the prices to dump out on them. Yep. And therefore the interest rates stay, you know. Yeah. One of the things that you hit on that I think a lot of people don't really understand too, is that back in those vintage 07 stuff, um, 08 stuff or 05 stuff, back in those vintages back then, you had 50 to 52% of those loans were what are called teaser loans, which is one year at a super low rate and then 29 at at a higher, much higher rate. Or you had what were called two and 28s which two years was a really low rate. And then it would kick to this massive rate, but everyone said, don't worry, you can refi. But those loans were 52% of the market. And in 2020, they were only 2% of the market. And in 2021, they were 4% of the market. Here's the interesting thing now. Now, because real rates got into for, for mortgages, because rates for mortgages got into the sixes, everybody started offering 4% ARMS, adjustable rate mortgages. So those actually picked up a ton of steam. And we literally went from two, four, to now over 10% of mortgages being done right now are adjustable rate mortgages. 
What's interesting though is, is that they're no longer allowed to do the one in 29s or the two in 28s. They're five year products. So you're going to have a low payment for five years and then they kick in and then you get a higher payment after those five if you haven't refinanced. But now instead of it being one in 29 or two in 28, they're mostly five year, number one. Number two is you also have to financially qualify for what your uptick payment is. Huh. So that's an interesting, because so that basically if the, when the rates do change, your five yep. years is up. Yep. You're already qualified to make that next payment. Yep. That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for failure. It leaves a lot less, right? Right. Like a lot maybe, less. right. If you lost your, like if the general normal stuff, and again, there are products out there that aren't qualifying for that second, you know, for the second term, the, tw the next 25 years or the 30 year fix. So there are some out there that are, are, aren't like that, but a lot of them are like that where you're qualifying for your initial payment and the, the reset payment. Um, but I think that me personally, that's, you know, when I watched the housing market fall apart, I was an investor. I started being an investor in 01. So when I watched it fall apart in seven, eight, nine, I didn't have any liar loans. I didn't have any ninjas, no income, no job, no, no, no problem or no assets is why they called them ninjas. But one of the interesting things with this new, with this new loan product, we are seeing people flock there because on these adjustable rate mortgages, these banks are willing to give on that first five-year period, like four and a quarter percent. So here's the thing. When you bought, you bought at three and a quarter. It's still a point higher than that. And you're still not guaranteed that for 30 years, like you're guaranteed that for 30 years. Right. So I think that those assets, even though they're doing a bunch of adjustable rate mortgages, people do your research, look and know exactly what that product is comprised of, because it's nowhere near as toxic as the garbage that was being churned out in 05, 06, 07, where a lot of those, where a lot of those mortgage companies went bust, um, you know, AmeriQuest, Countrywide, I mean, the, the list is long and distinguished, but I think that a lot of people, I always encourage 30 year fixed rate debt. Now there's 40 year mortgages um, and those are available now. And the concern that I have about 40 year mortgages is because people buy based on payment, they're going to be stretching on a house. And I don't love the idea because on a 40-year mortgage, you don't really start making any real principal payments until year 14. Wow. So think about, think about the dead money that that creates in housing of how much is that house going to turn over if I'm, not sell, if I'm selling in 10 years, the only equity that I may have has been caused by the market. It's not been caused by my pay down. On a 30-year mortgage, you can actually have that heavy pay down. And then really interestingly is that Japan actually offers 100-year mortgages. And the UK is actually talking about offering 50-year mortgages that are transferable to your children. Wow. So I, how is it that like, I'm still trying to like understand the idea of a 100-year mortgage. Yeah. Like it, how would you loan your money out for 100 years? 
Um, I think yeah. if you look at the Bank of Japan, that would tell you. <laughs> like, you know, I just started to think like, I'm just like a, you know, like I'm just an individual. It's just like, yeah, okay, well, I'd loan my money out to you for 30 years at an interest rate. Cause you know, over the 30 years, I'm going to live and get my principal back plus the interest payments, but you exactly. won't at a hundred, you're guaranteed you won't get it back. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. And so there are, so what a lot of people don't know is in the forbearance stuff, when people are getting loan workouts, they were getting 40 year mortgages or they were getting thirties plus zeros. And so the 30 plus a zero is it's a 30, it's still your 30 year mortgage. But what they did was they actually would have you requalify, but they would take the money that you had in forbearance that you didn't pay. They would stick it in one lump sum, zero interest. And you would still have to just pay on that over an amortized period of time. So there's not this big foreclosure mess coming. I was in that mess in 08, nine or nine, 10 and 11. It was 300,000 homes a month on average. Oh, that were going into foreclosure? That were, yeah. that were literally getting sold off. And so when you look at, and we started off with an inventory of about 3.6 million. So about six months worth of inventory. So you had 3.6 million homes available for sale. Then on top of that, when the financial crisis happens, you start adding 200, 250, 275, 285, 295, 300,000 homes a month. And for literally three years, it was the banks letting a supply go into the market that was between 250 and 300,000 homes a month. That's how crazy it was. But we were starting at a 3.6 basis. This time, we've got what? 1.4, 1.5 million homes on the market right now. So even if we started hitting at that clip, which we aren't, because Black Knight says 4.3 million homes that went into forbearance, that there are a few hundred thousand, that's it that are going non from forbearance, but into some level of default or foreclosure, we're talking 10%, Yeah, 10%, maybe 20%. Right. And, you know, and I mean, that makes a lot of sense considering that the price of homes have gone up and the interest rate below at the time, you know, if you, if you were sitting on a home that's underwater, you like, I mean, like me, when I, my house went underwater and I just couldn't sell it or do, I mean, I was just like, I was broke and just, I was just like frustrated. You know, I was just like, never mind. I'm just not even interested in this thing anymore. And just forgot about the whole thing, you know, and that's not the way to go about it. Don't, don't throw the letters away. <laughs> you should, it, it, it didn't work out too well for me. Um, you know, I ended up in collections and all that other stuff. But I think about the situation now is that, you know, even if you came out of forbearance and you don't have any income and you're going to lose the house, why would you let it go when you can sell it for a profit? You've got at a right. minimum, Simon, at a minimum, you've got 30% equity at a minimum. And that's if you bought with a three and a half percent mortgage. Yeah. And so I just don't see where the foreclosure, the wave of foreclosure is going to come from that. It just, it, I, I thought about it in the, in the original, like when it first started happening, I'm like, sure. oh man, this is going to cause a wave of foreclosures. But, you know, as the price of homes started to go up and the refinancing and, the, you know, I was like, oh, that ain't going to happen. I yeah. mean, it's just like, it's not going to happen in that fashion. So here you are, like you're saying, I mean, it's just a few hundred thousand that are going to go into default. That's, I mean, it's a lot and it's going to be painful for some people, but it's not going to make a significant difference inside of like changing the inventory levels to bring down homes to like a, like what happened like last a significant time. matter. Like we, yeah. like what happened last yeah. time. Yeah. We went it's, from like six months supply to like a year's supply last time. And now 
we're at like a two plus month supply. And let's just say that all, let's just say, let's get nuts. All those came on the market all at the same time, all on the same day. It would give us about a six month supply. Total. It would give us a six month supply. Totally. And see that goes, yeah. And that goes along with like what Jason Hartman's presentation was showing. I mean, you know, if you triple the supply, I mean, that's still what, six months? Yeah. Quadruple the supply. Now you got eight months. It's still not nearly, I mean, and a healthy market six anyway. Yeah, a healthy market six months anyway. Right. So that's exactly right. And yeah, it's it. I just don't see it. Like, I mean, there was a time when I really did see that there was going to be a problem with it, but as the pandemic kicked in and the things that they did to try and solve that problem, as far as like the forbearance. Yeah, it's not it's not what I thought was going to work out. You know, I thought house prices were going to fall, and that the uh, let me turn this thing back up. Yeah, you're good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that's what really was going to happen is that people were going to come out of forbearance, and all these inventory levels were going to start rising, and that simply just wasn't the case, as people could just sell their house for a profit instead of letting it foreclose on. Yeah, I think one of the thing one of the things that's concerning me is how concerned everybody is with price reductions. Talk to me about sales reductions. Talk to me about the number that that last exact comp sold for being less than the previous what the previous one sold for. Then we're in an area of correction. So people are citing all these crazy stats. Oh, this market there's forty eight percent price corrections. Yeah, because. Largely, people are pricing based on 60, 90, 120 days ago. And so they get out in the market and they're like, we didn't have one showing. No, you didn't have one showing. You're overpriced 100 grand more than what your neighbor is and 300 grand more than what the last house sold for on this street. The math doesn't make sense. So price reductions lead to what I believe is happening is a massive reduction in transactions is then going to lead to the start of reduction of prices. And then we'll start to see how rates really continue to affect things. But that's where I believe over the course of, I think we're going to give back some of the gains that we've had this year. I think housing's gained like 17 point something percent nationally median price has. I think we give back some of those gains this year. I think we're still in the double digits. And I think next year, I think we probably see a negative number on housing, but it's not going to be crash level. I think it's going to be correction level, you know, single digits type. Because I think if we're in a recession and then we start to see job losses, because I've never seen a recession because I wasn't alive in the late 40s. I never saw a recession where we added 387,000 jobs and where we've added 1.5 million jobs over the first six months of the year. So I think that's some of the other stuff that starts to shift. Thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, you know, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. Low and stable prices of around 2% inflation, whatever, now it's average inflation, whatever that means, (laughs) and maximum employment. Well, I'm pretty sure they've achieved their mandate. Yes. So one of the problems that you hear from a lot of the, you know, the talking heads out there is that there's not enough people to fill all these jobs. And that's causing wages to go up. And part of wages going up is inflation. So they're saying, okay, now we need to deal with these jobs issue. Like they actually say we need the unemployment to rise. I mean, I couldn't believe I heard that, but that's what they're saying. Oh, my word. So I think, okay, well, what is it that's going to happen here, right? Well, if you let the interest rates rise and it makes it more difficult on zombie corporations out there to roll their debts over, they're going to start failing and going into default. Yep. 
that's going to show recession, right? People are going to be like, look at all these like companies going bankrupt, all the layoffs that are happening. But because there is such small amount of labor to compare to the amount of jobs that are out there, could we actually have a recession where you don't have the unemployment? Right. You see all the zombies get their heads knocked off and those people, which is unfortunate for them, get laid off. But there's so many other viable jobs out there that they could go to that during this recession, because they had, you know, created this situation in which these zombies could grow by knocking the heads off the zombies, you can take care of the issue with the recession and not have the unemployment. Yeah. I agree with that. It'll be yeah, interesting to like see something that's never happened, you know, right? It'll be really interesting to see how that kind of carries out. So you've been awesome. Thank you so much for all the time that you spent with us. I want to give you one last plug too on the rebel. It's rebel capitalist conference, right? That's the one yeah, that you just, rebel. yeah. So you, again, from YouTuber to now speaking in front of massive conferences like this, kudos to you. Talk to me if you could as spend as much time as you want. I don't want to keep you any longer than, than oh, you want to okay. stay. But talk to me about your favorite part of the conference because most people don't get to go. <laughs> um, well, I've been to two of these conference yep. conferences now, right? Uh, I did one in Houston and then the other one was in Miami. And the one in Houston, I did a full presentation. You know, I stood up on stage for an hour spoke to 700 people. And that's the first time that I had ever done any kind of public speaking of that kind of level live in front of people. And I was very nervous about it. So I was very nervous about the whole event and it was all new, the whole concept was new. And other than being focused in on doing my presentation and doing the speaking, I was really kind of almost lost being there, you know, just trying to absorb what was happening there. The one in Miami, was absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I wasn't there to do a presentation. I did get up on stage for yeah. a uh, panel discussion. Yep, so, video, on, video on his channel too, by the way, check it out. Yep, there's a video on that up uh, on, on my channel. Um, so I'm up there with George Gammon and Jason Hartman and Ken Malkaroy and um, Robert from, uh, uh, geez, I can't remember his website right now. But anyway, there was a few of us up there that was an excellent presentation or as, as far as the discussion goes for the discussion panel, but I was more geared up to the networking of it. Yeah. And I was meeting people, talking with people. I was talking with the, with all the speakers. And so what I took away from this particular one, when I was listening to the presentations is one networking, networking is so important, like doing things like we're doing right here, this is the type of thing that gives you the exposure and the opportunities that normally you just wouldn't find on your own. That's right. You have to have a good group of people around you who are like-minded and heading in the same direction that you want to go. And you have to work with those people and get to know them. I mean, I came back from this network with some great contacts who I am now working with, trying to figure out other ways that I can expand my, my horizons with what I'm doing. And then on top of that, what I heard from the speakers was get prepared. Every one of them was saying they're getting prepared. They're getting prepared for shortages of food. They're getting prepared for being self-sustaining. They're getting prepared in every way they can to not necessarily to invest, but to protect themselves and their wealth because they, they have it, they feel it coming. And so this recession is probably going to be pretty severe as it hits mm -hmm. in. I agree. But if you were aware of the situation ahead of time, 
it's not nearly as problematic for you. I mean, you get to prepare and do things that are going to protect yourself. It's when you get blindsided is when it's really damaging. So, you know, being there with them, networking and and preparations, that's what I took away from the last meeting. It was it was so awesome. I mean, and the people there, like everybody was just so energetic and so like excited and happy to be there. You know, it was just like sharing their ideas and thoughts and it was a good time. It was like well, hanging out with a bunch of friends. Well, you certainly deserve to be there. I know that. And I think one of the other things that we talk about too is your net. We talk about your network being your net worth. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk a lot about that because, you know, almost all, when I was first starting out as a real estate investor, agents didn't bring me anything. I had to beg for them to go see something on the MLS, you know, and now I get deals, multiple deals that come across my desk a week. And I respect that. I respect and appreciate that. One of the really interesting things is, is I've started a series on mine from a landlord perspective, being able to help self-managing landlords, because a lot of times they just go and they don't know what products to pick to manage. So I always talk about the ones that we've used, tested, that we know are valuable because they're less expensive, but they still give a great value. So that's one of the things that we've done on our channel from a series perspective is to help those younger landlords. But the most important thing is we did a review on digital business cards. So I'm not sure if you can see. Hey, back that. it up a little bit. Yeah. Back it up a little bit. A little bit more. So there we go. There we go. Perfect. So digital business cards. Nice. Now, the reason we love these is because of what you just said. Your network is so important. You can actually put all of your information on this and you can put what your specialties are, what your CVs are. You can put those on this card. That way, all you have to do is tap somebody's card. They instantly have all of your info, what your skills are what everything about you that you want oh, them to know. That's incredible. These things Very cost, cool. yeah, they're like 20 bucks, 25 bucks. Really? They cost nothing. And I can tell you as a businessman, I have boxes of other people's business cards that I just haven't thrown out yet. And little tiny notes on the back that I can't read because I have the worst handwriting. So if people are interested, I did a video specifically on digital business cards, how I use it and how I share it to share and communicate with other people, because it's a great opener. It's a great way to introduce yourself. And most importantly is I can obviously bring somebody an opportunity, but they can bring me an opportunity as well. And I think that people handshakes and remembering people's names, especially at conferences, I did them for years. I'm lucky if I remember three or four people when it's all said and done, and they're the ones that really stuck out. But I know that because these haven't really caught on yet, these are going to be some, and they're awesome. You just tap the phone or even let them take a picture of the, uh, of the, uh, um, the, the code on the back and you're done. So I love them. It lets me list my website, lets me list my description, what I'm good at, you know, basically what I do. Um, and then that way instantly anybody can look at their phone and anytime they look up that word, it will actually bring up their, that profile. So. Yeah. Yeah, talk about a great networking tool. That's awesome. Huge. I mean, because yeah, I was like, I had business cards, I had them in my back pocket, and I put it through the laundry. And I'm like, dang, and luckily, like, I'm trying to find them on Instagram now. And you know, yep. I was like, man, what did he you know? <laughs> Yeah, so what on my card, I actually list my website, my Instagram account, my Facebook account, as well as my YouTube channel. So they get anything, they get everything about me right with the tap of a card. And I don't even, yep. so it's nothing I have to take down. It's a way to get people to remember you. And again, you're creating amazing relationships with industry movers and shakers. Would hate to have you just miss the next one that's your next best opportunity. 
Yeah, absolutely. But wow. yeah, that's, that's it. Like, I mean, really, I, you know, I, I found like the biggest change to my life and I hate to say it is when I dumped all my drinking buddies. Yeah. You know? And I said, I, I'm sorry, guys, I just, I got to get out of this and I'm going to move on to something else. And when I started, you know, started the YouTube channel and I started meeting people on YouTube and people who were like-minded and they were, you know, advancing and doing the things that I wanted to do. I started finding more people like that to communicate with and it changes your life. I mean, you, you are who you surround, who you surround yourself with. And if you really want to go somewhere, then you need to go and find people who you want to like, you know, who, who put out the image of what it is that you want. And if that's, if that's what you really want in life, you know, it's funny because somebody had commented on my channel. It's just like, so what are you saying? If I just think of myself as a millionaire, then I'll become a millionaire. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly right. If you're hanging out with a bunch of millionaires, you will. You will, you know, you will become a millionaire. That's how everybody else did it, you know? And so ninth grade high school dropout, I started getting into real estate, ninth grade high school dropout. I hung around a lot of people that talked real estate, thought real estate, asked a million questions, and I'll never look back. And now we try and help out as many people as we possibly can with having that same conversation that I got the chance to have. So it's so cool. Um, Last thing before I let you go is you do your live streams and your live streams are spectacular. One of the things that I really want my subscribers and the people who watch my channel, um, when you guys need to attend his live streams and you need to super chat the man so you can get your question in there because he gets a crazy amount of questions and also trolling turds that just keep on cutting and pasting. And that's tough to delete those from a phone. I know I have experience. But that said, if you guys, I know that you will benefit from spending some time with Simon and the uneducated economist on his live stream, super chat the man. He's earned the time. I promise you the money that you spend on the super chat, it is going to be worth its weight in gold because you're getting an answer from somebody that's deep in that market and really understands what's going on, reading all the things that let's face it you're not going to take the time to read. And if you did, you probably wouldn't understand all of it like he does anyway. So I encourage you, please show up for him. I love attending his live streams. In fact, sometimes I'll be honest to do it during work. Um, But I think they're absolutely fantastic. So I would absolutely encourage you, make sure to make an effort to be at some of his live streams. And when you do, I know that you have good questions because I get asked great questions all the time. Sometimes it's economy based and I'm not an economist and I don't spend all my time there. I can talk about how it relates to housing, but not much outside of that. So I would encourage you show up for his live streams, super chat the man because he absolutely deserves it. And I think that you'll get the answer to your question. So hopefully that helps drive some more attendance because I don't know, you certainly don't need the help. Like the last one I was on was like 1200 people. It's that one blew me away. I couldn't believe I had 1200 people watching me at that, that time. I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, like most of the, most of the uh, live streams that I do, you know, it'll have between 500, 800 people or so, That's but yeah, all. that one jumped up to 1200 and I was just like, wow. Um, you know, I don't, I don't set them up as far as time goes. I probably should schedule them. I probably get a lot more viewers in on them. So I do just randomly just decide, okay, I'm going to live stream right now and I'll just bang, fire it up and just start talking. And so it's not necessarily going to be like a hit and a miss on whether or not you're going to be able to find them. But 
you know, I try to do them in the afternoon, somewhere around, you know, one o'clock or so Pacific time. So if you're, you know, happen to be bored at the time around one, maybe check out the channel and see if I'm doing a live stream. If nothing else, I'll probably have a new video up. So it won't be disappointing to at least come check out the channel. All they got to, all they got to do is subscribe and hit the notify button. That's all they got to do. Subscribe and hit the notify button. And by the way, a hundred thousand subs, the day that you hit it, I sent you an email because I was just like, dude, you did it. You got to a hundred thousand subs. Congratulations. That is awesome. Matthew, I never... I didn't think that this channel would ever get a thousand subscribers, let alone a hundred thousand. And unreal, you know, like, I mean, you know, once you hit that hundred thousand mark, it's like, you know, you, you, you did it. You're like a legitimate YouTuber at that point. And bro, I'm doing a video, man. God, I got this guy over here. He's yelling at me anyway. So I, uh, anyway, um, you know, once you hit that, you know, that you're a legitimate YouTuber and, you know that what you have done is not is not bs right Right. i mean it's it's the real it's it's real and i mean i can't fake it this far like there was a time i wondered i was thinking man you know am i going to be like you know am i am i going to get like discovered as being a fraud or something am i legitimate here you know like what am, am i real or what and then you know as time went on i'm thinking man they're gonna figure it out they're gonna get you know something and then I realized, dude, you're you're not faking it, man. You're no. this is it. You are legitimately doing this, and it's happening. So, I mean, I, I didn't, I couldn't believe it. Like, you know, it was just like, all right, you know, I'm just gonna keep pushing forward with my opinions and the things that I find, and we're gonna see where this thing goes. And that's what happened. I mean, you know, plenty of people told me it was just like, no, man, you're the real deal. You're really doing legit, this. legit, legit. And it surprised me. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I really didn't. I was just like, I'm just going to get out there and I'm going to give my opinions and we're going to see what comes from this. And man, I like for now, I feel like, yeah, I really do understand the economy and people do appreciate the opinions and I'm just going to keep doing it. I mean, obviously it's not faking it. It's real, you know? Well, I mean, I think you do a a phenomenal job um, of making it relatable you've done the work and i think it's the same you know for us that's what we pride ourselves on is that it's like you can disagree you can say no you can say i'm wrong all those things all of my things that i share are experiential and they're what we've actually done in response to what we've experienced and so hopefully that helps people if it does awesome and if it doesn't that's okay too so i really appreciate you taking the time for us Tell everybody where they can find you, my friend. Yeah. Um, so pretty much I'm active on YouTube. You can find me at Uneducated Economist. I have the Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all the other stuff. But And I have a, a website as well, uneducatedeconomist.com. But really, I do most of my chatting and communications and stuff like that through YouTube and the YouTube comments. If you want to send me an email, uh, uneducatedeconomist at gmail.com. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much how you can find me right now. It's awesome. Like I said, do yourselves a favor, watch his content. He's absolutely dialed in and, and on his live streams, super chat the man. I'm telling you, he'll answer your question. And the only reason you need to super chat him is because he's getting a thousand questions. So super chat the man, get the answer to your question. I'm telling you, it's well worth the while. Simon, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time with us and uh, look forward to us getting together again, but um, really appreciate it. And for those of you who are watching on the Lumberjack Landlord 
hit that like button, hit subscribe, absolutely ask some questions because we love to follow up with, with the uneducated economists on additional questions. So appreciate your time so much and look forward to doing this with you again soon. Thanks again, Sam. Absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. I so appreciate this. Happy to do it, my man. Appreciate right you. We'll talk soon.